Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the Super Bowl in the books, I wanted to let you know about all of our coverage across the site. We have Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Roger Sherman, and more breaking down every aspect of the game, including winners and losers, key plays from the game, and the halftime show performance. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube channel where Kevin Clark talked to Amari Cooper on Slow News Day, and Roger Sherman chatted with players from each team for their thoughts leading up to the game. Be sure to watch and subscribe to our channel on youtube.com slash The Ringer. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about some of the most interesting filmmakers in the world. I'm joined by two of my most beloved colleagues and two of the great thinkers about this filmmaker we're going to talk about today. Amanda Dobbins, hello. Hi, Sean. Chris Ryan, hello. Hey, buddy. We're talking about Steven Soderbergh, and the reason for that is because Steven Soderbergh has a new movie out today on Netflix. What a time to be alive that Soderbergh's just... It's not called Netflix What a Time movies. to Be Alive. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that it were. It's it kind of, it, it would fit. It's also not out of the realm of possibility for the future. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see the Drake biopic by Steven Soderbergh. I think that that would be wonderful. Or perhaps the future biopic. That would also be good. Um, the movie is called High Flying Bird. And it is truly scooped from the brain of the ringer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if a movie has ever been more designed for the ringer than High Flying Bird. Um, I want to talk a little bit about High Flying Bird, and then after that, we're going to talk about our top five favorite Steven Soderbergh movies. Steven Soderbergh, of course, is one of the great living filmmakers and has made many, many movies over the years. He is perhaps the most prolific filmmaker of his generation. So before we get into our top fives, let's do High Flying Bird. Guys, you just saw it last night. I saw it last week. Can you give me your kind of instant reactions and maybe talk a little bit about what this movie actually is about? I would say that watching High Flying Bird gave me the feeling of what it must be like to be a securities trader who sees margin call, where you're like, wow, I actually get this. <laughs> so obviously, like, I've been working, I've, I, my other job is to work on a lot of the basketball content at The Ringer, so I understand labor disputes within the NBA and, and the sort of modern struggle between player power and owner power in the, in the league. Uh, that being said, I, I didn't quite completely, totally, exactly grasped the very last 10 minutes, I think, okay. in terms of like what happened. I'm going to have to rewatch it a couple of mm-hmm. times. That being said, this is easily my favorite Soderbergh movie of the last, like, since Haywire. And I, I think it's like dazzling in terms of uh, its screenplay by uh, Terrell Alvin Mac- McCraney. And it's like the lead performance is among the best lead performances in any Soderbergh uh, movie with by Andre Holland. And it's just such a dynamite movie. And I'm actually like really excited to rewatch it. I remember when you were talking about Scrug, Sean, you were like the underrated part about these Netflix movies is you can immediately run it back. And I can't wait to do that with this. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the story, it's an interesting thing for us to talk about because it's essentially focuses on an NBA agent who is sort of trapped between his clients and a, a league that is in lockout. And the league locking the players out and sort of this labor dispute that is happening, which I think on its surface does not sound very interesting. You know, there was, I remember the NBA lockout uh, six or seven years ago, and it was quite a dull time in the content minds. You know, Chris, you were working at Grantland at the time. And yeah. I, I think um, it was terrifying. There was some concern about what the future <laughs> of the of Grantland was going to be at that time. Amanda, you, you are 
becoming increasingly learned about the NBA. Thank but you I, but, so much for that credit. I appreciate it. I had some thoughts about some recent Sixers yes, uh, yes. activities before this podcast. That Those thoughts will not be on this podcast, but you can find Chris and maybe Amanda sharing them on other Ringer podcasts. But just as a, as a slightly more casual fan and observer, I guess was the movie too arcane or confusing? Because that was the one thing I thought would be kind of an issue for people watching this. I will echo Chris's... Uh, enthusiastic questions about the end of the movie. I, I saw it with Chris and Chris turned to me with like, Chris is enthusiastic about a lot of things, but you know, he really lights up when he really likes something and you did. It was very <laughs> nice. Um, and he was like, that was amazing. And I, I don't totally know what happened at the end, which I had hoped that Chris would be able to explain it to me and maybe I'll rewatch it. But Chris's enthusiasm is a good summary of what's appealing about this movie because you can tell that Soderbergh is also very interested in this world. And I spend a lot of time around people who care about basketball and who talk a lot about it. And I kind of skim the cream off the top, you know, like I know who Jimmy Butler is, but I couldn't tell you the other guys in the trade. And and I don't even think Jimmy Butler's in the trade. Please don't at me. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, but, you know, you you get the high point. I get the high points. I get the narrative arc. I understand why it means something. Yeah. And this movie does a great job of communicating why the NBA means something, why basketball means something, why all these characters are involved. It transcends the nitty gritty. Yeah, there's something uh, it hadn't occurred to me before, but because this is essentially a story about player power and agency, both literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, um, the fact that it's dropping the week of the NBA trade deadline is ridiculous. It, yeah. I mean, it can't be a coincidence, right? There has to be some savvy scheduling genius at Netflix who knew that, I mean, there's such a high tension. And the interest. week before All-Star, which exactly. is typically the, the basically a convention for NBA agents anyway. Exactly. It, it is truly... Uh, a fascinating movie. There, there are other great performers in it. Uh, Zazie Beats in particular, I think it's great. Sonia Sohn, from, who people know from The Wire. She is remarkable. Really great. Yeah. She's essentially playing um, a sort of NBA player association stand-in. She, I, I, somewhat, Roberts. yeah, based on Michelle Roberts, yeah. Um, there's a, a delightful Kyle McLaughlin uh, series <laughs> of scenes portraying an NBA owner of some kind, though I can't figure out. Did you have any sense of who that might have been? Uh, I got the feeling like it was somewhat supposed to be Dolan because mm-hmm. of the family aspect of it. Um, but I think that he's, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure who he's supposed to be modeled on otherwise because no one is that good looking and young who owns an NBA team, I don't mm-hmm. think. Incredible moment in a sauna with Kyle McLaughlin yeah. in this movie. Uh, so there are a couple things to note about High Flying Bird that I think are fun. One, it's entirely shot in an iPhone. This is not the first time Soderbergh has done that. He also did it on Unsane, uh, which is not as good a movie as High Flying Bird. And he really seems to be enjoying himself with what he's doing in this movie. Like, if he, there are camera angles in the movie that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's clearly just like Velcroing a phone to a ceiling and then shooting a movie, which is kind of an amazing tech. He breaks the line leap. a lot. Like, he'll jump, he'll jump the axis in a conversation two or three times. It's really disorienting. But because it's essentially two hours of, of a monologue, you know, I mean, there's other yeah. people talking, but yes. for essentially it's like Andre Holland, they they take the safety off in the first scene. And then he, if he's not talking, he's walking. It's true. It's a lot of watching Andre Holland walk across New York. This movie was written by a playwright. Yes. Yeah. 100%. It is yeah. a very chatty, very talky movie. But the other thing that I think that using a phone allows particularly is we get to see the wide expanse of a city because you don't have to get a permit to shoot a movie like mm-hmm. this necessarily. It's a lot easier to capture Andre Holland stalking the streets of Midtown in New York, which would be so hard to do now and so expensive. 
And Soderbergh is really crafty. Now, I'm sure they got the permits or whatever. It's Netflix. But you can see that there, there's some trickery going on here that other filmmakers couldn't accomplish. So I love that about it. And I also want to note, Adam Naiman pointed this out to me, which I thought was very wise. There's a, there's a plot angle in this movie about sort of who has the rights to player performance. That is to say, like, networks pay to air NBA mm-hmm. games. And the idea of Netflix or a streaming service coming along and buying those rights so that a player could play in a one-on-one tournament or a three-on-three tournament or a different version of, of NBA basketball is at, kind of at the center of the conflict of the movie. And that is also the conflict that Steven Soderbergh is at right now. Because Steven Soderbergh, his last couple of movies, I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit, um, he made this very bold gambit to release them with a company called Bleecker Street. And he tried to take much more control over the marketing rollout and strategy around releasing a movie, not just making it, but how it got into theaters, how they promoted it. You know, the marketing budget for movies is usually somewhere between 20 to $40 million, especially mid-tier movies. He was saying that's too much. We don't need to spend that much. Recently on the Bill Simmons podcast, mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh admitted that he was wrong. That, in fact, he thought he had cracked the code with Logan Lucky, and nobody went to go see Logan Lucky, even though I think it's kind of in the conversation for, I don't know, top 15 Soderbergh movie. Very fun movie um, with movie stars. And you can see him using Terrell Alvin McCraney's script to kind of work out his feelings about, you know, where should a movie be? Where should sort of the rights to my creativity live? And what's the best way to disperse those things, which I thought was such a— such a cool self-referential thing, which I'm sure, as we'll talk about, is something Soderbergh does in all of his movies. Yeah. I mean, one of the most exciting things, and we're going to be getting into this, obviously, about Soderbergh as a filmmaker, and it's like any great filmmaker, is that it makes you think about other stuff. So I've read a couple of different reviews of pieces of writing about High Flying Bird. A.A. Dowd was talking about how this works as like part of a trilogy about about the body with like uh, with Magic Mike and girlfriend experience. I've read uh, some people talking about how this is obviously like he's still hung up on not getting to make Moneyball. He was (laughs) fired from Moneyball or left Moneyball. And that this is essentially like there's a couple of things in High Flying Bird that are in. Uh, where he is intending to do in Moneyball, essentially doing interviews with real people from the industry. So there's interviews in High Flying Bird with Donovan Mitchell and Carl Anthony Towns and Reggie Jackson, all NBA players, talking about what it was like when they first got into the league. So it's just, it's a great text. I, I loved, I, it was a really cool movie to see and to think about. It really is. Any other thoughts on High Flying Bird, Amanda, before we start sharing these top fives? Well, I just wanted to go back, and we'll talk about this in the movies, but <laughs> The point about how Soderbergh is really enjoying himself, which is really palpable in this movie. And, I, you know, on the Bill Simmons podcast, he had a lot of questions about the NBA. He's clearly a basketball fan, definitely knows more than I do. I learned from that podcast and then, like, tried those takes out on other people. And they were like, no. But um, <laughs> we'll talk about this in his filmography more generally. But Soderbergh likes to try things out. He's he's always experimenting. He's like, what if we made this type of movie? What if I did it with this camera? What if I, you know— he moves really quickly and likes to try things, but he is most successful when he pairs that with like an actual enthusiasm. And, you know, his films are a little wry and a little distant. Mm-hmm. So you don't always think of it as like enthusiasm with a lot of exclamation points, but he really, and I think this is something that we all relate to in him. He's like a real culture nerd. He really like gets interested thing in things and wants to dig in. I'm obviously the culture diaries are our favorite things of yeah. like <laughs> yeah. of all time. And I do want to talk about those, but he's just like reading and consuming and listening. And this was a great reminder of like when the stars align and when he's both trying some stuff, but like really juiced in on the topic. It's it's pretty transcendent. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's so much to work through in his filmography. Five years ago, 
Chris and I wrote a piece for Grantland that essentially, I don't know, categorically analyzed Soderbergh's movies. Mm -hmm. And a lot has changed since then. He's made four movies since then. He's made, I think, another episode, another season of The Nick. And he has another movie coming out, I think, later this year called The Laundromat, which is essentially about the Panama Papers. Mm -hmm. And that's a big kind of... I don't, that feels like him doing traffic to me for the first mm -hmm. time in a long time. So maybe we'll have to just do this podcast all over again at the end of this year. <laughs> I'm psyched. Um, let's do top fives. Amanda, why don't you start? I suspect we're going to have plenty of crossover. So when we do on these top five podcasts, we'll use that as an opportunity to share all of our feelings so we're not repeating ourselves. Okay. Number five, Amanda Dobbins. I'm going with Aaron Brockovich. You want my number. I do. How about this for number six? That's how old my daughter is. Eight is the age of my son. Two is how many times I've been divorced. Sixteen is the number of dollars I have in my bank account. I'm so glad we got that out of the way. Nice. Okay. Great. I don't have that on my list. Me neither. Okay, I figured. That's part of the reason it's on here. A couple things. I really like when Soderbergh just does smart genre. I think that's his greatest skill, and we'll talk a lot about that. And I love a legal thriller. Or is it a thriller? It's more of a... Yeah. A detective case, Character if you study. will. Yeah, and it is also a bit of the, you know, harried, underestimated woman who uh, transcends. I also like the in-joke in that movie that it's like Julia Roberts, who mm -hmm. is underestimated. There is always a little <laughs> bit, I mean, you know. No, you're right. Soderbergh, and High Flying Bird is really interesting in this. It's like a pretty earnest movie. There are beliefs and ideals in it, and there are in all of his movies, but he's never like, really corny about it, if that makes any sense. So I like that it's just like Julia Roberts tits out while being like crusading for the the people of the community. And then the movie star of it all. Yeah. He just, I mean, the performances that he gets out of anyone, but especially just big Watt movie stars, that's my favorite thing. And, you know, this is like Julia emerging onto the scene and obviously Ocean's Eleven is going to be somewhere on all of our lists. And I think that's like... Slightly a better performance, but it's fine. It ha It's like Pretty Woman, but 20 years later. Mm -hmm. I like the meta quality of the Julia Roberts performance. and Yeah, you get the feeling yeah. like he thinks about movie stars the way like William Goldman did. Like he has that kind of depth of understanding of the public perception of a movie star and how to tweak it just enough so that you're like, oh, I haven't seen Julia Roberts like this before, but also that is definitely Julia Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, ah, I'll make it look sandy in Inland Empire, but it's definitely Julia Roberts. Yeah. You know? In some ways, it's sort of the most Julia Roberts. It's not mm -hmm. her at her, it's it's maximal Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. And it's I think it's also maximal Aaron Eckhart's hair and, and beard. <laughs> and uh, it's also, it's a very good late period Albert Finney performance yeah. too. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. He is, is he the greatest director of movie stars alive? Uh, I think you could make that argument. I definitely think you could make that argument. I think there's something to yeah, it. Because even in his like less successful films, you know, we talked about Logan Lucky. Those that's two pretty darn interesting performances from Daniel Craig and Adam Driver. You know what I mean? Like he's still kind of doing this. Yeah. Andre Holland is not a movie star, but he knows how to amplify and almost like, I don't know, almost make a caricature out of what we love about a person. Yes, but still also glorify it yes, and yes. like give it room to breathe. Yes. He's really self-aware. And I don't know whether I relate to Steven Soderbergh movies because he's really self-aware or just because I learned to watch movies by watching a lot of Steven Soderbergh movies and he trained me to expect that in a movie. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, our generation has yeah. basically been taught how to do the kind of iterative, uh, almost like meta version of movie making because he is that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just one observation is I feel like I really relate to the way that he does things. Not that I know how to do it this way, but I like the idea 
of a clinical version, a, a fun version of cl- the clinical. You know, that there's something very organized about everything he's doing. You can see the way he's thinking in his movies, even though they, they have like fizz and pep. Yeah. You know, Chris, what's your number five? Uh, so you guys were talking earlier about with High Flying Bird about how it, it's obvious that Soderbergh's having fun making this movie. And I'm going to pick a movie number number five in which he did not have fun. And that's mm. Che Part One, The <laughs> Argentine. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. El love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. A real revolutionary goes where he is needed. Uh, which is unlike any... I mean, is that your number one? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of unlike any historical biopic I've ever seen. It's basically the when you look at your dad and he's just like on page 470 of like his seventh Theodore Roosevelt biography, <laughs> that's what this movie is. But there is like this kind of ma- like magic that happens inside this movie where it's like you'd basically take this icon of the 20th century who's on t-shirts and has just become completely divorced from his own pers- pers- like his own actual accomplishments and life. And you just zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and it's like, oh, it's a bunch of guys in a dining room in Havana drinking tea and now they're in the mountains. And now like, and it's all process and it's all getting up every day and going to work every day. And this is a movie that uh, Soberg sort of infamously said afterwards that every day I wake up and thank God that I'm not doing that movie anymore <laughs> because he didn't, this was not a dream project for him. He took over for Terrence Malick um, and basically wanted to get it done for Benicio. And so they Then they made a four-hour movie that they chopped up into two parts that doesn't really have any, like, highs or lows or any act structure or anything like that. It's essentially chapters of a history book with no widescreen panoramic understanding of what's going on. And I kind of was, like, mesmerized by it last time I saw it. And I would just say also, speaking of movie stars, it's an incredible does horror performance. I love that one. I haven't seen that movie probably since it came out. Yeah. I don't think I watched it when we wrote that thing five years ago. <laughs> uh, it's a big investment. You know, yeah. four hours is real. And you're right. It doesn't have, I think of, uh, I re- you know, we recently obviously watched The Godfather 1 and I immediately felt like I had to watch 2 right afterwards. I recall not having that sensation was, after Che Part 1. I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever... S- I definitely haven't finished two. Whether yeah. I started it is anyone's guess. It's kind of a slog, but it is a fascinating example of his willingness to sort of, for lack of a better word, commit to the bit. You know, he really, he, he goes all in. Um, my number five is Ocean's Eleven. It's never been done before. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? You want to knock over a casino? Three casinos? <laughs> so. Ooh, wow. Uh, what? Spice. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I don't know how much we should talk about this because we did an entire rewatchables podcast. Me and and you and you and Juliet Littman. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear an hour of us talking about Ocean's Eleven, you can certainly get that out in the universe. Though I suspect you guys have some feelings. Yeah. Where do you have it on your well, list? We can. Why don't we just save this for later in the list? You want to save it? Yeah. I mean, I it's a. I'm happy to say what where it is on my list. Well, let's wait. Okay. 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 So uh, number four, Amanda. Ocean's Twelve, baby. Okay. We need a job. We need a high-paying job. Well, now we're too hot to work anywhere in this country. Where are we going? Great. I can't. It's four is actually pretty low. I almost put it at at, on my list as well. Okay. Why? I. I'm sorry if you've heard this one before because I really (laughs) feel like this is my greatest campaign. I think that this is the greatest sequel that has ever been made. Wow. 
What's better? Well, besides The Godfather 2. We but just like, that talked about count. the greatest sequel of all time. That doesn't count. The Godfather 2 isn't like a sequel. It's a continuation. Uh, okay. You know, okay. it's like this story goes on. It's I would like say a, Empire, know. but I feel like you're going to pick something up and cave in my head if I do that. <laughs> How about Terminator 2? Uh, okay. Well, okay. Fine for you, but for me, Ocean's 12 is okay. better. That's a good take. And what what makes it the best sequel? Part of it is just that the ambition and result are totally in line. It is just like, it is a sequel. It They have a different heist. The goal is to recreate the fun and the experience of being with movie stars again. That's it. Mm-hmm. And it's just completely in line. And it's actually a movie where a sequel works. Mm-hmm. I think that the variations they do on it are hilarious. And the, particularly, it's all based on the scene of Julia Roberts in the back of the car. Um, so to if you haven't seen Ocean's 12 in a while... So Terry Benedict's goons have finally tracked down George Clooney and they want their money back. And so George Clooney and pals got to do another heist and it goes wrong. And so Tess, Julie Roberts' Tess, has to come and save the day. And the whole way that she saves the day is a gambit where Tess is pretending to be Julia Roberts. (laughs) And it's Matt Damon coaching Tess to be Julia Roberts. And she's like, I don't look anything like her. And then they encounter Bruce Willis as himself. And they're doing a whole bit about being in Taos. And it's just, they're making fun of themselves. It's really knowing, very funny. You're in on the joke. And that's the appeal of those movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. You're in on the joke of, you're in the gang. You are you get to be part of these this crew and hang out with these celebrities. And I think it's so clever. And then it just like ends. And does it totally, does it makes sense. The way they explain it, it barely comes together, but you're like, sure, why not? And Doesn't underrated Catherine Zeta Jones yeah. performance. And yeah. then Catherine Zeta Jones and Brad Pitt. Yeah. Do they ride off into the sunset? Sort or of, it's like yeah. they flashback and they ride off into the sunset. I can't believe we're not yeah. talking about the Night Fox at all. Yeah, the right. Night Fox. Like right. Vincent yeah. Cassell in this movie is incredible. Sure. And so they're like double villains. Mm-hmm. There are there's the a great Cherry Jones performance. Mm-hmm. Matt Damon gets to shine. There's this scene where they go and they're trying to arrange George Clooney and Brad Pitt are pranking Matt Damon by just like quoting Led Zeppelin go- jokes with another guy. It is more of if Ocean's One is like a it's a heist movie, but we did some experiments with it. Then this like doubles down on the the case study and like here are all the weird things that we can do because you already have the baseline understanding of like oh this is a this is a fun heist movie with some friends. So one thing about this movie that I've been thinking about recently as we mourn the sort of desecration of Hollywood over the last ten years, how it has fallen <laughs> at the knees of dinosaurs and superheroes, you know, Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve and Thirteen is a remake. It's a reboot. Mm -hmm. And these are sequels to a reboot. Mm -hmm. So these are the quote-unquote problem with what we have in Hollywood. They're unoriginal ideas suffused with newish movie stars, but they're incredibly well-made and they're fun and they're well-written and they're perfectly performed. So like, we can still do this. Like, oh yeah, I just the hope. biggest thing yeah. with the oceans movies too is is that they never insult the intelligence of the audience, which is something that you can't say for a lot of the superhero and dinosaur movies. Is that they actually treat you like a grown up? Which I, is, I also th- thought that, that was something that Ocean's Eight didn't do. I thought that Ocean's Eight weirdly was not complex enough, and that's one of the reasons why it wasn't as successful. It had nothing to do with it being an all female cast, or even necessarily with the director. It was sort of like. It felt like a watered-down version of these Oceans movies, Mm -hmm. and that's why it ultimately doesn't work. Chris, what is your number four? Uh, I cheated and put season one of The Nick. With every blow I land, 
Every extra year I give to a patient. And know that at the very least, something has been won. Great, go ahead. Uh, so just low-key, he directed a 20-hour movie about a hospital. Uh, <laughs> I, we, we forget about this. Like, that's just sort of like, not a lot of other directors have done that. Check me, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. It's like, Carrie Fukunaga had to go to director jail after he did <laughs> eight episodes of True Detective. And, I think uh, he's doing fine. He's doing fine. So, hidden inside of all this. So, obviously, uh, The Nick is a story of a turn-of-the-century um, New York Hospital and the invention of sort of our more m- modern uh, surgical and medical techniques starting Clive Owen as this uh, cocaine-addicted um, doctor who's really pushing the limits of what um, medicine is capable of doing and whether or not there's an inherent brutality in cutting into people and fixing them. And it's also got a bunch of physician heal thyself stuff. The script for this show was pretty okay. It would. I, I, there's a version of it that would have been on like TNT. It's it's okay. I definitely don't remember what happened at all. Well, so then you get Clive Owen, and you just say, "Let him turn him up and let him just chatter teeth across the table." <laughs> then you got Andre Holland burning around there in the in the on the margins, and then Soderbergh essentially is like, "I don't really care about the language of television, visual language of television." So if two people are having a conversation over here. My camera is literally just going to go down the hallway the other way, and we're going to hear the conversation, but I'm going to look at these light bulbs because they're pretty interesting. And they would essentially shoot like an unheard of amount of pages per day uh, in New York, and it was just this kind of dazzling fever dream of a show that was on for two years. And, you know, there was always this rumor that his idea for the show going forward was that the Nick would be the star of the show. And that they were going to do like a version in the 70s and a version in the, you know, like, and basically they would have this like either a rep theater company or or new actors come in and be doctors in these different time periods in New York. And obviously they felt like they couldn't make that work for a variety of reasons. But that first season in particular is kind of a perfect gem. And it's amazing to see. I think that's where he really starts to exercise a lot of the muscles that you see him doing in the last couple of years you see it in High Flying Bird. There's a couple of scenes where like two people are having a character, but Z Beats is the person in the frame and she's not talking. Yes. And it's just like a 45 second reaction shot of her until they finally mention her. And she's like, yeah, but that happens a lot in the Nick where there's like a conversation that would be, if I had to just watch this straight, I'd get kind of bored after a while. But because he's now watching someone clean out water pans why these two, while these two robber barons talk about whether or not the Carnegies are in town, you know, you get, or bedpans, you get the kind of idea of like, oh, he's playing with all these different ideas at once. This is really a dad history list of Soderbergh. <laughs> that's fine. I think that's good. You're doing dad history. Yeah. I'm doing movie star. Yeah. That's, that's great. And I'm doing obsession with genre. My number four is also a cheat. It's three movies, which I, I don't like to do, but fuck it, it's my podcast. Um, <laughs> so this, this is the informant contagion and side effects. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't think that on their own, all three of these movies are better than Ocean's Eleven, so don't get it twisted. But this is the Scott Z. Burns trilogy, the screenwriter who uh, collaborates with Steven Soderbergh frequently. In fact, uh, The Laundromat, his forthcoming movie, is written by Scott Z. Burns. Scott Z. Burns is also the director of a movie coming out later this year called The Report, which debuted at Sundance that is about the CIA. Scott Z. Burns and Tony Gilroy are kind of the alpha and the omega of the greatest living screenwriters in the eyes of many right now. I pick these three movies because I think that they do something that is pretty remarkable, which is Steven Soderbergh paying homage to a certain kind of genre that he loves 
while making it his own movie. The Informant is very much a kind of Hal Ashby, 70s oddball, tonal comedy drama. It's based on a real-life story about uh, an executive at a uh, food company, essentially a corn company, who has been essentially manipulating the FBI and his own company to defraud everyone. It's definitely in my top three Matt Damon performances. It's such a funny, strange movie. Uh, It reminds me a lot of being there. It's like being there on acid. It's just very up and, 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 you know, the movie, the movie's title ends in an exclamation point. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about it. I don't, Steven Soderbergh doesn't strike me as the kind of person who uses a lot of exclamation points in his emails, but (laughs) nevertheless, there's something very arch and wonderful about the movie. Contagion, it's definitely his homage to the kind of China syndrome outbreak 70s disaster movie. Uh, it features the single greatest shot of Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow yeah. uh, of all time when she is. <laughs> That's rude. But just, what does just, Damon say? She had a what did she had a fever? <laughs> she had a cold. That's yeah. so fucked yeah. up. I sat in the front row of the movie theater for that somehow, and yikes! Wait, because that's like when he goes in and and they're like, "Yeah, we lost her." Yeah, and he's like, "What do you mean you lost her?" Like, yeah. is a it's it's simultaneously very tense, but also kind of a commentary on stardom. You know, it, yes. it's him just murdering movie stars with this this influenza outbreak right. and that takes in, over the world. And Gwyneth specifically, that's in like 2011, which is kind of the first wave of like true Gwyneth backlash. Definitely. And he seems to sense yeah. like how to put people in a position. To, he, he's he's tapped in. Mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh's always tapped in. It also features kind of some early um, deep thoughts about vlogging. I don't know if you remember Jude Law's character in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Who's kind of an Proto Breitbart he's kind of. Alex yeah. Jones. I mean, yeah. in many ways, he's Alex Jones. And that movie looks, I don't know about insightful about the forthcoming influenza outbreak that's hitting this country, but certainly insightful about the way that we communicate about terrorizing things. You know, there is a panic around that movie that it feels very insightful. And then side effects. I don't even know if I like side effects, but I like that Steven Soderbergh. I fucking love side watching side effects. I had a great time. So side effects is sort of his homage to the Adrian Lyon eighties. I, I, you know, I guess erotic thriller. from hell. Yeah. For, yeah. Woman from hell movie. Um, that S- starring the only true Mara. Uh, you know, we we could do. Let's do a, a Kate versus Rooney podcast another day. Sure. Uh, I think this is a good Rooney Mara performance. I think it's a very good Channing Tatum performance. That's kind of like the schmuck. You know, I love the schmuck in these movies. Richard Gere and Michael Douglas and the guy who you're like, that guy's handsome and he seems to have it all. And then he is he is felled quite quickly by not real, realizing who he's surrounded by. So those three movies together, I think, comprise this super interesting approach that Soderbergh takes to basically bygone tropes of movie making, which is one of the reasons why he's so great. Number three, Amanda. Magic Mike. Good evening. You live here? Yeah. Yeah? What's your name? Kim. Kim, can you move back for me, please? We keep getting complaints of noise and underage drinking. Everybody sit down. We're going to be here for a while. You don't have anything sharp on you that I can stick myself with, do you? No. Good. Because I do. Great. Again, I mean, you know, we don't have to belabor the star quality thing because it's pretty obvious at this point. And the Channing Tatum of it all is like one of the great gifts that Steven Soderbergh has given to us. I think you can say it's like step up and then Steven Soderbergh created Channing Tatum. And Channing Tatum has like frankly not done as well since he left the Steven Soderbergh orbit. I think I, I was watching clips of Magic Mike this morning before we did this podcast, which is like a quite a way to start your morning. I do recommend it. I no also coffee think, needed. I also think that YouTube could really put a few more of those dances on 
its service, though I wondered whether it just like veered too close to porn and so they pulled them. <laughs> Have you seen YouTube recently? <laughs> <laughs> but they're like really, they're not available as easily as they should There's be. There's like a guy smoking yeah. a bowl of measles on, on YouTube. I can't believe they're going to keep Magic Mike from you. <laughs> um, but you know, there's... The physicality and the, like, the way that he is able to capture, I mean, obviously, it's appealing dancing, but also the athleticism of what they're doing, and especially Channing Tatum, is really remarkable, and there's just, like, a real energy to the way that it's performed, and it's, like, you feel like you're there. He's creating an atmosphere that's, um, again, like, quite uh, electrifying early in the morning, but also it really impressive. I mean, I had forgotten... That movie was such a phenomenon. That was only seven years ago, and now it's really burned into our brain. And it pretty much sets him up for this second part of his career, because yeah. you have to imagine. I think that he and Tatum were basically like, we're going to do this for free for points. Yeah. And the other guy's working at scale, and, and that was a gigantic hit. I think it was his first kind of low-budget bet that paid off. Yeah. I think this, the budget was about $7 million, and it made... $170 million. And also there's a sequel to this movie. And a musical, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And a musical, yeah. So he created another kind of universe. Yeah. You know, he's amazing. I really like Magic Mike. I haven't seen it, I don't think, since it came out. I'd like to see it again soon. Chris? Haywire. She is our nation's most valuable weapon. You got a car? Uh, you guys know that meme where it's like Timothy Chalamet run me over with your car. Mm -hmm. It's like Gina Carano choke, like put me in a sleeper hold. Like, <laughs> uh, and I say that, and then I'm also going to say that like, this is like m maybe my favorite collection of like dudes other than Ocean is 11 in a, in a Soderbergh movie where okay. it's Ewan McGregor, Michael Fassbender, Michael Douglas, Channing Tatum, and Antonio Banderas and Bill Paxton. And, uh, it has maybe... My single favorite scene in a Soderbergh movie that's not in my top two movies, which is the diner scene with Channing Tatum and Gina Carano and, and Michael Arangano, where Channing Tatum is like, I'm fucking hungover. And he's like, really does look hungover. And then he and Gina Carano just spend five minutes beating the ever-loving shit out of each other. But the, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of fight scenes in my life. That's not a brag. And uh, in person, like in this bars? is the first time you ever, this is one of the first times I've been like, what would happen if two superheroes actually fought in a diner? Like what would happen if two mm -hmm. trained killers actually started fighting in a diner? And it's low key fascinating. Cause like the waitress gets involved. Like the waitress hits Channing Tatum with the coffee pot and Michael Angano jumps on him when he's about to shoot her. And it's like this incredible fight. And then he tops it with the fast bender, Gina Carano fight in the hotel room. The script, like, is by Lem Dobbs, who also wrote The Limey and also wrote Kafka, so is a, is a frequent collaborator with, uh, with Soderbergh and is obviously, like, tapped into the part of Soderbergh that just wants to make Get Carter and make 70s, like, espionage and crime movies. But in terms of uh, basically subverting and also paying homage to a genre, I don't know if it gets better than, like, this is essentially, like, his Bourne movie, and it, in a lot of ways, is as good as any Bourne movie. I love that. I would highly advise people rewatch the Fast Bender fight scene too. That is the all time. Like this is actually what it's like when a woman throws you over her shoulder into a table. Like it, it, <laughs> it feels. Are you speaking from personal experience? No, there? <laughs> but I, I will say that this is an extraordinary segue into my number three, mm -hmm. which is sex lies and videotape. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think there are a lot of a lot of women out there that'd be glad to have a young straight male making a pretty good living. 
Sex, Lies, and Videotape falls firmly into my theory about great filmmakers' first films, which is you can pretty much figure out everything you need to know based on this movie. It doesn't mean that it shows them at their best, but it does show what they're interested in and how they apply their thoughts to the world. I certainly am a believer, and I don't mean this as an insult, so I, I understand why it would be received as such, but the filmmakers of this era who emerged strongly, particularly Soderbergh, David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, that sort of grouping, Paul Thomas Anderson in some respects, Spike Jones in some respects, that kind of Wes Anderson, that white guy brigade of geniuses who kind of came out of Sundance in the early 90s are all perverts. Now, <laughs> they're... they're I, I can't believe that you're taking this public. It's not... Pervert is... We talk about this a lot in our private lives. I don't so. mean this in the in the kind of clinical or criminal sense. I mean this in the sense that they are, the idea of perversion is appealing to them. And the people in the world who take what we hold to understand to be pure and natural and normal, and they twist it and they, they fuck with it. David Fincher's first movie is Alien 3. Spike Jones's first movie is Being John Malkovich. Wes Anderson's first movie is Bottle Rocket. And Quentin Tarantino's first movie is Reservoir Dogs. And Steven Soderbergh's first movie is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. And in all of those movies, you basically see a version of humanity corrupted. And you see people breaking the laws, not the, the sort of governmental laws, but the human laws. Yeah, the, of what the social yeah. contract. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that is absolutely what these people are interested in. And Sex, Lies, and Videotape, while it is not necessarily the most dazzling work, it's, it's, it doesn't have any of the effervescence of Aaron Brockovich or that, that charm of Ocean's Eleven. But it has all these ideas about what guys who all they want to do is just like watch VHS cassettes all day and jerk off, like really are about. And it's also about really like genuine human relationships. <laughs> Mel, welcome to Marwin, Amanda. <laughs> so I, 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 I hope if, if some sort of Steven Soderbergh uh, friend or acolyte is listening to this, they don't mistake my point. My point is just that it's amazing how much of yourself you can put into a movie, even if it's about disgusting people. Yeah. And... I think that mm-hmm. this is such an amazing evocation of that. And I would encourage people to rewatch Sex, Lies, and Videotape because it was made for like no money and it basically reset the conversation for the Sundance Film Festival and also for maybe my sense of reality as a young man when this movie came out. <laughs> Amanda, number two. I mean, this is predictable, but out of sight. No bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. Is this your first time being around? No, you're doing great. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. So this is my number one. Yeah. This I is my number one. Yeah, I assumed that it would be your number ones, and I think everyone can now guess what my number one is. Uh, should we just do... Is it like, Kafka? How <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's actually Bubble. Um, <laughs> wow, you never really get a Chris reaction like that. So we should just do like two versus one, I guess. Great. Um, my number one is Ocean's Eleven, and yours is Out of Sight. I mean, Out of Sight is a, is a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. And is when Soderbergh kicks into high gear as a filmmaker. It's like he figures out basically everything. He figures out how to work with actors and get amazing performances. He launches a couple movie stars. He figures out the genre thing and just how to subvert it and how to modernize it. He figures out how to make movies that people want to watch, which comes and goes, I guess, throughout the next 10 years. I really do think it's perfect. And the only reason I put it at number two is because I think Ocean's Eleven represents the qualities in Soderbergh that I value more, which is that sense of enjoyment, that fizz, that that efficiency. And we're here because we're interested, but we also want to have a nice time. I think that 
you know, I mentioned his culture diary where he just like consumes a huge amount of stuff. It's, I, you know, I don't know how it's totally possible and it's really impressive, but he likes movies. He's interested. He studies them. He's obviously like technically extremely gifted and knowledgeable, but at the end of the day, he's like, you know what? It's not a movie if it's not fun to watch. Yeah. And so that's the Ocean's Eleven thesis for me. And that's why I put it at number one, because I think more filmmakers should should have that attitude. I don't know. Maybe that's just what makes Soderbergh special and he can have it and everyone else can be boring. I would never draw the this is what the difference between boys and girls is line. But there is something about Out of Sight being mm-hmm. a boys movie and Ocean's Eleven being a, more, a little more interesting to women. I, you know, that's very simplistic, but I suspect, Chris, that Out of Sight, a big part of that, the Out of Sight appeal, maybe slightly over a movie like Ocean's Eleven, which is also a perfect movie. I mean, they're both perfect movies, is the kind of Elmore Leonard crime caper aspect of it that is so resonant for us. Did you grow up reading Elmore Leonard, Amanda? No. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so for, for Chris and I, that's like sacred text. That's true, but I think it's the most deeply romantic Soderbergh movie. Mm. And I think there's an argument to be made about it versus Oceans, obviously. Wait, more so than that Gwyneth Paltrow shot I was talking about? (laughs) She went in with a cold! Uh, The scene in the Detroit hotel where he walks up to her with the lighter is like, it's not only like, is it like, oh, that's Jane Fonda, Robert Redford level. It's like better than that because I think it's someone who's in his head making a scene that's like with Jane Fonda and Robert Redford or with Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. But it's, it's like actually better written. It actually, like, that scene, the what-if scene, like, is, is like, one of the five best scenes I've ever seen in my life. And I, she is so good in that scene where she's like, my name is Celeste. Yeah. It's such a magical, magical movie moment. And then you kind of just go back out, the ripple effect out from that. There's no bad, uh, there's no bad moment in this movie. And then if you try to describe, like, if I just grab somebody, I was like, here's this movie. And I was like, oh, by the way, Luis Guzman, Catherine Keener, Michael Keaton, Don Cheadle, Viola Davis, like, Steve Zahn, like, everybody who's just in the far, like, just corners of this movie. Then you get to Albert Brooks, George Clooney, Ving Rhames. And, Nancy and, Allen, Dennis Farina. Yeah, it's just yeah. like every single person is throwing 99 to 100 miles per hour. And Soderbergh fucks with it just enough to make it interesting for him with the time jumping and like a little bit of the shifting. Cause I think that they wrote that script straight, like just as like, here's an Elmore Leonard crime paper, yeah. but he's jumping from prison to prison to this escape, to that escape, to, you know, his job interview a year later or whatever. It just is the perfect marriage of all these different sensibilities. And I just, it's so emotionally rewarding every time I see that movie. But that being said, I've probably seen Ocean's Eleven more times than any movie other than Jaws. Uh, and I'm never bored and I'm always just absolutely thrilled with every single part of that movie. So I feel like I can't talk about that without just literally repeating myself. Some of it is like greatness versus watchability. Not that out of sight is not. No, I know, totally I, I know exactly what you like mean. There's just like an ease of entry and Ocean's Eleven just like starts and you're along for the ride and it really moves. And that's another thing I really like about Soderbergh. Like he keeps it moving. Yeah. That's an efficient ass individual yes. like in the Pacing. approach that he takes to filmmaking like both within the film and also like he makes however many movies a year and I think I, you compare the two because it's like I, arguably the love story at the heart of Oceans is Brad Pitt and George Clooney rather than yeah. George Clooney and Julia Roberts but in terms of 
uh, color palette in terms of working with David Holmes with the music in terms of the kind of rat-a-tat dialogue that is like part 50s noir and part like Robert Altman mash and then also like Aaron Sorkin-y more contemporary stuff. Like they kind of really do go together hand in hand, Oceans and Out of Sight. So mm-hmm. that's why I think it's such like a, a photo finish for me. I think that those are ultimately the two movies he'll be remembered for, too, which is funny because he made Traffic and Aaron Brockovich in the same year. And they are, he, he won a Best Directing Oscar against himself. Yes. He was nominated twice in the same category and didn't split the vote. That's how strongly people felt about Traffic, which at the time people were like, a master has reached his pinnacle, mm-hmm. um, which of course was not true in, in many ways. But I, I do think that in sort of the arc of critical and, and even just like emotional watching history, out of Sight and Ocean's Eleven exist on that plane. I think Sex, Lies, and Videotape is there too just because of the origin mm-hmm. myth. But, you know, I put uh, The Limey at number two, which is not at all in this frame of conversation. And I, I would never be so bold as to say, like, The Limey is more watchable than Ocean's Eleven. I think Ocean's Eleven is a little bit more watchable than Out of Sight, and Out of Sight is a little bit more great than Ocean's yeah. Eleven. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. differentiates mm-hmm. them, as Amanda was saying. But The Limey much like those Scott Z. Burns movies, is kind of representative of another kind of movie that he makes and makes really well, which is kind of a man-on-a-mission movie. And that also, we can use that as an opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of talk about High Flying Bird again. Um, he likes to focus on people, Aaron Brockovich is very much the same way, who are bound and determined to accomplish their goal. And he has this incredible way, and it doesn't really matter what the person is. If the person is a crusading lawyer, if the person is... Uh, a contract killer come to seek revenge mm-hmm. if a person is looking for a bag of money. Uh, he really is able to just capture obsession because he's obsessed mm-hmm. and he is completely obsessed by his own movies. He's completely obsessed by other movies. He's obsessed by story and and character and people. And the Limey does the same thing that I think High Flying Bird does, which is like, it kind of doesn't make sense sometimes. And it's a little bit all over the place in a way. But you, it never loses your attention and the confusion doesn't really ultimately matter to your enjoyment of the movie. Maybe let's use this as a chance to talk about the ending of High Flying Bird, which, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it, I would turn this podcast off right now, but we are coming close to the end, so we're going to do it. Okay. What didn't you understand? I don't understand why he had to sacrifice his relationship with Eric. Like, I, I got what he did, which was essentially create this, like, du- like huge storm to get the two sides to agree right. so that Eric could start getting paid again. And then... By proxy, like Sam would get catapulted into this new world and everything, but I didn't quite understand when Sam's like, he's going to fire you, and he's like, of course, that like it seemed like that was the plan, and I just didn't quite grasp that. Uh, lamb to slaughter, I think, was the idea. You know, it's like, but was it like that was the plan, or was it like that was a a collateral damage of my whole thing? That was my understanding. My understanding of it was that this wouldn't threaten his business long term losing Eric uh-huh. and that he'd be able to recover from that and he would make it clear to his agency I can't remember the name of the SAV the, yeah. fa- the fake CAA yeah. um, and that it would be understood by Zachary Quinto that Andre Holland's character is invaluable because of his ability to pull off a machination like this so you lose a client so be it what didn't you understand what was the part well I guess why did it take him six months to do this you know because it's suddenly like They've been in a lockout for almost six months. And then he gets like one meeting in the corner. Zachary Quinto is like, you got to fix it. And well, then he's they, just I like, think it, I can see all the pieces. Yeah. And they come together. And they cut and his, I, cor- like, I think they cut his corporate yes, cards, right? And everything. So I think it only just occurred to him in that period okay, of time. I think right. from when the movie starts is when he realizes he has to do this. I think I just wasn't clear whether there were some 
other aspects of the plan that had been in the previous six months that I didn't really understand because of like basketball. Right. I think it had an, it's interesting because I thought that the sort of key ideas about the NBA were primarily trapped in 2013. Mm -hmm. It felt like a movie that was kind of written five years ago. Oh, yeah. But that bigger idea of Netflix wants to pay for the rights to basketball Mm -hmm. is real. We're we're coming. We're we're getting real close to that. We're probably 18 months away from that conversation getting really loud. And that that's going to be another thing that's just like Steven Soderbergh's foresight, you know? Yeah. It was interesting to be, uh, Chris and I saw it at Netflix. So it was interesting to be sitting in the building when those things, like those lines started happening. Yeah. Uh, I, that was the only thing that was confusing to me it was just like that. And the, like, you, you know, they were going to blackball me and that scene. And he's like, obviously letting this kid have it. I thought maybe it was cause like, now you understand, like, otherwise we were just always going to have this situation where I'm going to come bail you out of these, like you, you get a loan and you do this stupid thing and you do that stupid thing. And I'm constantly bailing you out. But I couldn't understand why that needed to be the end point. And while I thought Zizzy Beats was phenomenal in this movie, I wasn't quite sure the maneuvering of her into becoming essentially the next Myra was, I was just a little bit like in the dark about, but I think that I'm it. That's how heist movies work is you're like, wait a second. They, they, they had a mask on the whole time. Yeah. Like that's like kind Let of the, get this straight. You're saying Steven Soderbergh is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> wait, can I ask, can I just ask one more question just about the plan? And yes. This is, this is like non-expert Amanda asking the questions. So when will expert Amanda be showing up? I meant, and that's so nice. Um, at least you believe she exists. Um, the streaming and the games that pop up, like the one-on-one game yeah. that's seen 24 million times, and then there's that scene with Kyle McLaughlin and, the, and some other dude, and they're like, there's a game in Vegas, and then there's like another three-on-three in Miami. Mm-hmm. And so the threat to the league is, can we play that out a little bit? Is it just that the... A breakaway league, essentially. Okay. That they would start developing this, like, interest in these guys who were, like, just showing, happening to show up in places and okay. play basketball because there's a lockout. So they're not contractually obligated to, like, right. honor certain things. And that there would be a breakaway league, which I think is, they don't get much into the economics of basketball except for, I think, the sauna scene or maybe, and then some of the scenes with Sonia Sohn and, and um, Kyle McLaughlin where they're like, we we're the reason everybody watches and the owners are like, but we have to pay for like the vendors and this and the, the, the food services and the bathrooms. And we have to send you on planes and buses and pay for the doctors. And when you guys get hurt, like we eat the money and all that stuff. Like that's what owners say for why they deserve the 49 or 50% split that they have uh, now. But you know, I think of it like this, the team owners, are the traditional movie studios. And mm-hmm. they have a very defined way of doing things. And they run the industry. And there's a feeling that they are not doing things correctly and there's a better way. Now, if filmmakers try to go out, much like if NBA players try to go out and start their own league without any infrastructure, they're not going to be able to do it. Hence, Steven Soderbergh failing with Logan Lucky. Mm-hmm. He tried to essentially do it on his own and it didn't work. But maybe there's a new way to use those levers of power to succeed with a new paradigm, which is Netflix. And this is like a really self-congratulatory film if you look at it through that lens because, of course, this movie debuted today on Netflix. Guys, you want to do any uh, honorable mentions? Any, uh, I just, I, I really wanted to put this on my list, but I couldn't. Chris last night posed the exercise of what if we just... What if you had knocked out of yeah. sight Notions 11 yeah. off the list? Interesting. And I, I would have put 
contagion and side effects together as one, I think. But Sean covered that. I was trying to think if there was anything else. I no mean, one, we did, no one mentioned traffic. Yeah, that was interesting. Traffic but, was going to be like six or seven for me, which is a movie I hated when it came out and have come to really adore. Hmm. Well, I thought Soderbergh on Bill's podcast, he answered the question about like, could this be on Netflix now or would it be a miniseries? And he was just like, yeah, it's Narcos. And I, I mean, credit to Steven Soderbergh for making Narcos or making a better version of it. Narcos is no traffic. Yeah. Just putting that out there. No right. Shots, a much Chris. better version of it. What, 20 <laughs> years before Narcos? Yeah. But, you know, we we have... Narcos needs more Topher Grace. Right. Uh, sure. Doesn't everything. <laughs> He's in one scene. <laughs> He's yeah. very, very funny and traffic. Um, any other honorable mentions? No? I do. I mean, I know I mentioned The Culture Diary, but I really, that shit's so good. Yeah. It's amazing. He's like reading, I, this year alone, all the novels that Steven Soderbergh read, seek those out. They're great. I haven't read all of them, but the ones I read were fantastic. And the other thing related I guess this is just like Steven Soderbergh's public persona, but when Chris was talking about the Nick, I just Googled the um his responses to studio notes on the Nick. I I seek that out. It's really, really great. He engage he does a line by line response. Really? And oh, you've never seen these? No. Wow. I, this is gonna be like a whole new blogging oh, like, great. zone for you. Um, I would say I just uh, want to shout uh, him out as a producer uh, and as yeah. a person who recognizes and promotes like other talent, especially the first season, uh, the first, I guess the first two years of, of Girlfriend Experience, this show, which was, you know, I think I I really liked, but is a hard show to love uh, because of what it depicts and and the tone of it. But especially the stuff, you know, where he's working with Amy Simons, he's working with... Uh, Scott Frank on um, Godless. He worked with Spike Lee. You know, he's 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 a really, really, really big voice when it comes to supporting uh, filmmakers. I'd also like to shout him out as a liquor master. He is also the purveyor of I have Singani sixty three, which is a Bolivian liqueur mm-hmm. that is uh, white muscat of Alexandria grape that is mixed into a clear and mixable spirit. Perhaps we should get some Singani 63 for the Ringer offices. I'm available. Maybe just to celebrate this podcast. Amanda Dobbins, Chris Ryan, thank you guys so much. Thanks, John. 